I think that's one of the reasons that the film was such an unexpected crossover mainstream success was that audiences were just hungry for a new thing. And if you, if, if nothing else, and there are many other great things about it, but if nothing else, Pulp Fiction felt new. It felt edgy. It felt like no other film that was in cinemas in 1994. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk about Quentin Tarantino's classic movie, Pulp Fiction, which debuted in theaters exactly 25 years ago. I love you, pumpkin. I love you, honey bunny. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Any of you fucking pricks move! And I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! Interestingly enough, this movie, which revolves around criminals and hitmen in Los Angeles, has a lot of travel in it, or at least it features a lot of chit-chat about travel, in part because, as I discuss in today's interview, Quentin Tarantino wrote the script for Pulp Fiction while he was visiting Amsterdam. Including me in this discussion is film critic Jason Bailey, the author of four books about film, including Pulp Fiction, The Complete History of Quentin Tarantino's Masterpiece, which is a comprehensive exploration of the movie. It's also a book I've had to buy three times since it's the kind of compulsively readable book that people borrow and never bring back. Jason writes about film for venues like the New York Times, Vice, and Rolling Stone, and when I saw his byline in these places, I realized he was someone I knew in another life. Jason grew up in my hometown of Wichita, and back in the 1990s, he directed a number of shoestring budget independent films in Kansas, some of which featured people I knew. We talk about that a little bit in this interview, since Jason once fancied himself as a Quentin Tarantino-style filmmaker before making the transition into criticism. And weirdly enough, I fancied myself as a Tarantino-style screenwriter around the same time. You might recall last season, in episode 10, I recounted the experience of writing a Pulp Fiction-style script for the company that would eventually make Sharknado. Seriously, you can't make this kind of stuff up. The influence of Tarantino and Pulp Fiction back in the 1990s is something Jason and I discuss quite a bit, and because Jason has an almost scholarly knowledge of the film, we really explore a lot of interesting themes and facts about Pulp Fiction, from its tendency to remix elements of other films, to its incredibly vivid characters and dialogue, to the idiosyncrasies of its casting process. Just by listening, you'll learn a ton about how Pulp Fiction was made, I know I did. This episode is brought to you by my longtime partner, Airtrex. You know, at one point in the interview, we talk about the exhaustive touring that Quentin Tarantino did to promote his first film, Reservoir Dogs. And while I doubt he used Airtrex to plan his flights, his trips would have been a lot cheaper and easier had he done so, since Airtrex specializes in multi-stop and round-the-world tickets. Check out their flight planning tools at Airtrex.com. This episode is also brought to you by Tortuga, which makes backpacks and backpack accessories specifically for vagabonding-style travelers. You can check out a selection of their packs at rolfpots.com tortuga, and if you find something you like there, you can get 10% off your purchase by using the promo code DEVIATE. Okay, buckle up for a comprehensive deep dive into the world of Pulp Fiction, the themes it explores, and how it got made 25 years ago. First, I want to I want to explore this moment 25 years ago in 1994 when this movie first came out, um, and I think for for people of a certain generation, i.e., my generation, uh, 
we were very attuned to Pulp Fiction when it came out. And, you know, Jason, you've written for the New York Times and The Atlantic and Rolling Stone and Slate and Vice. You've written four books about film, including your complete history of Pulp Fiction. Um, but I, knew, I first knew you as a filmmaker. Um, mm. and, and as a critic, you might be one of the few, if not only, uh, film critics in New York right now who has a body of work that includes several feature films. Um, so I remember you first as, as sort of a regional filmmaker in my hometown of Wichita, Kansas. And so I guess I'll start this out by saying, was Pulp Fiction an influence on that filmmaking career? And if so, like what percentage of an influence was it? <laughs> like, I mean, my first, I, I made my first film six months after, um, uh, it's Pulp Fiction was, re- was released. Uh, it was written actually before I saw the film, but after I saw the trailer, hmm. like that's how much of, of a sort of, of an atomic bomb this movie was that I remember my friend, my roommate had the VHS tape of the crow and one of the trailers in front of it was Pulp Fiction. And I was, pre- you know, and I was hyped for it. I was prepared. I knew who Quentin Tarantino was. Um, I had also been a video store kid. I worked at four different video stores in our aforementioned shared hometown. Um, and so I had seen Reservoir Dogs as a video store guy and had recommended it to people. I had seen, you know, True Romance based on his screenplay credit. I was excited about the movie, but the 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 promises that that trailer made for what kind of a movie it was going to be were were mind-blowing. Um, so I like, like, I think a lot of regional young filmmakers who started out in the, you know, mid nineties, I don't know, probably my first three or four movies were just outright attempts to make my own Pulp Fiction. Like it's really hard to overstate the influence for good and ill. I I think mostly for ill that that specific film and its style had on low budget filmmaking in the 1990s. And that's been written about it a, a lot. I think um, uh, Matthew Zoller Seitz uh, at one time wrote, uh, the, que- that the question for young filmmakers who dream of having their buddies don expensive suits, tote handguns, and whack people changes from, is a gangster re- movie really the best way to say what I want to say? To what can, how can I make my gangster film marginally different from other gangster films so thus justify having made it? <laughs> yeah. So, so it's funny that like... Um, I think that you're an outlier in that you actually took the Tarantino inspiration and made movies because I had friends, literally, some of whom you may know, who like printed like business cards that said filmmaker because, <laughs> because that Quentin Tarantino myth, and we can unpack this later because I think there's something really brilliant about Tarantino's storytelling style um, mm-hmm. and specifically Pulp Fiction. But the myth was that, hey, here's a guy who worked at a video store and yep. watched a lot of videos and then made a video. Um, and so I actually, uh, I actually wrote a Pulp Fiction knockoff script in 1995. I actually, uh, episode 10 of my podcast last season was talking to, to um, David Latt, who um, I, I actually was sort of an intermediate Pulp Fiction wannabe guy because I submitted mm. it to an independent studio who later went on to make Sharknado, if you know, The Asylum. <laughs> oh, Yeah. And and we we talked about this for a while, and, and he remembers me. And so so a year ago, I talked to him, and we did a little, little reanimation of my 
pretty horrible Pulp Fiction ripoff <laughs> script. Yeah. But I think just so, so my audience knows, this was a moment, if you were a certain of a certain demographic, and let's face it, it's it's mostly like young white guys who, who mm-hmm. are a little bit nerdy. Um, yep. It, it was almost as if Pulp, uh, Reservoir Dogs had set the stage uh, along with these uh, along with these trailers so that there was this palpable buzz when Pulp Fiction yeah. came out. Yeah, it was really intense. I mean, and and the the important thing to remember about Reservoir Dogs too, which I think it sort of gets gets forgotten in the the sort of retrospective glow of that movie is that it was not widely seen initially. Like it debuted at Sundance and did and was a made a lot of noise there. Was a really buzzy title specifically because there was not a, there were there had not to that point been a lot of genre films. Uh, that played that festival. It was still very much of the sort of, you know, earnest character driven drama with maybe a few laughs, like was still very much the, the, the norm at that festival. And if memory serves, it was the same year that and El Mariachi both played that same year at Sundance. And so suddenly they were, there were these small and they were low budget, but they were genre movies and they were bloody and they were, you know, there were guns and there was violence and, but they had a unique perspective on those genre tropes but when reservoir dogs came out theatrically it did quite poorly it you know it opened in a few markets it didn't do great business it kind of went away and didn't start to find an audience until it hit vhs um that's certainly where i first saw it that may have been where you first saw it that's where most of us first saw it but i think that's the kind of the intensity of that sort of word of mouth both from viewers and from clerks from guys like us who were the same sort of Quentin Tarantino style movie nerds that were talking about it with that kind of intensity had a lot to do with that film acquiring that that little cult that it did in those two years between when it came out and when Pulp Fiction came out. I think that's something that may have been lost in the internet era is just the influence of the clerks, like indie record store clerks and, and yes. indie video store clerks. And and it's funny how in, a, in some ways your story parallels Quentin Tarantino since you were a video guy who became a maker of films mm. at the regional level. And another quote I'll give for you, this one's from Hal Hartley. He says, <laughs> at, f- at film schools, you have all kinds of kids from the suburbs who are writing gangster films that take place in the city. And that's so far removed from them. They should be writing films about sitting on their couches watching gangster films. <laughs> so what, what interested me is that so far as I know, you when you were a young filmmaker in the middle of the country, you weren't making Pulp Fiction ripoffs. I mean, the first movie of yours I saw was called My Day in the Barrel, which was very a very personal movie about young men, and it involved young men sitting on couches. So... Um, so if you could just trace your career, and I promised my audience we'll jump into Pulp Fiction in a second, but just to contextualize things, if you could trace your career from Pulp Fiction to My Day in the Barrel to eventually sort of graduating from regional filmmaking into being a national film critic. Well, here's the thing. I'm glad that that's the first one of the films that you saw. Um, that was not the first film that I made. And in fact, I had to get my four Pulp Fiction ripoffs out of my system before <laughs> I was ready to make the personal comedy drama relationship based thing about like people I knew and people like myself, the first four movies were all genre films. Um, some with gangster elements, almost all with gun elements. Um, most of them told non chronologically. Um, like, I mean, all were pretty, uh, the, 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 the through line from each and, Oh, and by the way, 
all of which featuring me and my like 18 year old friends playing like hardened 30, 40 year old, you know, uh, tough guys. <laughs> the, the, the line from from Pulp Fiction to each of those films could not be clearer. But I really do mean that like it was a matter of getting those out of out of your system hmm. of the, I think most filmmakers, except for the ones that are really drawing from a, a, a very specific idiosyncratic point of view. I think most filmmakers, whether you see it or not, whether it's student films or homemade short films or whatever, start out doing imitations of the filmmakers that they admire. And then through the process of those, they learn the process of making a film. They learn the sort of ins and outs of storytelling. They learn how to do that innately and make, get themselves to a point where they can make something that feels more themselves, where they develop a style that's their own, which is in most cases, and I mean, Quentin Tarantino is a great example, the, a style that is in many ways a combination of elements from the filmmakers that you've admired that just sort of coalesce and synthesize and become you. Um, and I, I don't think there's any shame in that. And he's never really apologized for that. But I mean, even the guy, you know, the guys who his style is drawn from are guys, you know, like Scorsese who will tell you their own guys that they put, you know, and, and there's this sort of rich tradition of, of sort of taking the parts and assembling the thing that's you. Well, once we dig into the film itself, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that, simply because <laughs> everybody borrows, but Tarantino's way of borrowing or stealing was so specific and also so apt narratively. Like, he wasn't <laughs> just slapping things together like I did in my Pulp Fiction ripoff screenplay, that he, that he was doing double or triple duty every time he was he was calling on some previous influence. Right. Uh, and it, when you were talking, it occurred to me that you could probably organize a film festival where you find like a thousand young guys who made really middling Pulp Fiction ripoffs in the nineties. Yes. And you could, you could create this, this absolutely horrible, but fascinating uh, film festival of 18 year olds pretending yeah. to be 37 year olds being gangsters in yeah. suburban Seattle or just, you know, working class Wichita, Kansas, which is more right. milieu. So. Right. Yes. And, and, you know, you could also put together a, 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 a festival of, you know, well-financed, you know, low million, two million, three million dollar independent films that that were made and released that were of that ilk where you can see where you can see the, the, the lines that clear. And some of them are pretty miserable and some of them are actually kind of great. You know, um, I mean, we can t we can talk about sort of the influence later on if you'd like. But I mean, like, oh, you know, you talk about a movie like like Go, like Doug Lyman's Go. It's incredibly clear that that was a movie that somebody made after seeing Pulp Fiction 20 times. It's three stories. They're told non-chronologically. There are guns in it. There's cheerful violence. There's black comedy, et cetera, et cetera. But Go, I think, is a terrific little movie also on its own terms. That's very much a case of somebody seeing what they what they could do with this sort of structure and these tools, but then creating something that was itself, something that was that was new and interesting on its own terms. Yeah, I think I think a little bit later we can talk about that short-term and long long-term influence of, of Tarantino films. And you know, Go sure. was written by John August. Yeah. Um, and I'm a big fan of the the Script Notes podcast. I don't know if you listen to, to screenwriting mm -hmm. podcasts anymore, but um, uh, he would I would be curious to have a, like a parallel conversation with him about his experience with Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Well, let's in the interest of of um, uh, the audience who's probably dying to hear our, our breakdown of Pulp Fiction, let's jump into the movie itself. Sure. And this is such a, a strange movie, and 
something that will come up again and again is it, it's a movie that borrowed from a hundred other movies, yet it felt so unique in 1994. Um, right. So how would you describe it? Like, what? How, how would you describe Pulp Fiction to someone who hasn't seen it before? I mean, it's it's. Re- I would describe it as uh, it's almost like a variety show. You know, it's almost like where you would watch Ed Sullivan and you would get a comedian and a juggler and a singer and a dancer and a dog act like Pulp Fiction has that same sort of, there's a little bit of everything, you know, it's a gangster movie. It's a romantic comedy. It's uh it's a hard boiled drama. It's a, a spiritual journey. It's, you know, it's, it does all of these things and it, and it sort of, does them all simultaneously in a way that that I think is is how it manages to achieve that particular tone because it's shifting gears so often but it it never feels like it's anything but all of a piece you know um, the best the, the the quickest description is it's it's three crime stories set in a short period of time in the city of Los Angeles like that's basically it um, each of them sort of begins with. Uh, a, 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 a standard story of the the pulp fiction magazines and paperbacks um and then in the course of its telling takes a wide left turn and goes in a direction that you're not expecting um and then also somehow all of them kind of come together into uh, a thematic whole by its conclusion they I don't of, know. I, I don't know that I just described it well. And I've been talking about this movie for 25 years. Yeah. Like you've written the book on Pulp Fiction. I was thinking as you were, as you were giving your preamble, I was thinking, yep. If, if I'd never heard it before, your description, while completely accurate, would probably not convince me to watch the movie. No, right. There's nothing in there. That's like, oh, well, I got to see that. Yeah. There's nothing. Yeah. But, so, so it is this variety show, but it's, I guess it's, it's just executed in such a charming and vivid way. That it's is this just it's ex, this extraordinarily memorable movie? Yes, one of the the wisest choices that he makes in the film is to open it with the piece of music that he does, which is Miserloo by Dick Dale. Um, this really wild, fast surf rock song, and the way that the movie you know it has this prologue where we meet two characters who we don't see again until the very end of the movie, which is a very Tarantino storytelling trick. Um, so we have this short scene between these two characters and then this opening credit scene where these huge letters just fill the screen and this music is loud and it's uh, and it's it's fierce and it's roaring at you. And, and it's surf rock, which is not it's which seems like a strange choice for like a crime triptych. But, you know, he talked about how he always felt that surf rock didn't sound like surfing. It sounded like spaghetti westerns. And so it really roars at you with, with, with this and and it's, and it's setting up the kind of film that it's going to be. And then it delivers on it in a way that I think is sort of astonishing still. Yeah. It's an interesting preamble to those three acts where you have, you you have these hit men uh, and this is something we can come back to. They're, They're basically on a way to hit. And we, we know that they're on a way to a hit because at one point they take, their guns out and say we need shotguns. There's five people that we're, we need to talk to. Yet they're talking about foot massages, right? Right. Um, and, and so, and then then the surf rock is sort of this counterpoint to also to the seriousness. And so I jotted down a few stock elements of of Tarantino films, but Pulp Fiction in general. And that mm-hmm. is 
Um, actors who are sort of making a comeback. Yep. Um, criminals who are a little bit weird um, or eccentric. <laughs> a nonlinear yep. cr- chronology, which we've touched on before. Um, esoteric tr- uh, soundtracks, which we've touched on before. And then th- this conversation that sort of roots itself in minutia and in pop culture in a, in a really in a way that's that can be really funny and really quirky, even as elements of the plot are are setting out. And we, it feels like in that preamble where where Jules and Vincent are driving after there's two parts to the preamble, I guess, where there's the 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 robbery of Pumpkin and Honey Bunny robbing the, right. the restaurant, and then Vincent and Jules are driving to this place. They're talking about travel, which is funny because travel is sort of my thing, and mm-hmm. and they're talking about going to McDonald's, you know, in other countries, which is such a such an American instinct thing to do, and how those little differences are are happening. But as they're talking about travel to Europe or the propriety of a foot massage, we realize that something very serious involving um, handguns, hopefully, uh, preferably shotguns, is going to happen. So it's an interesting narrative moment that the film opens with. Yeah, it's he, and he's talked about that he just that he likes the idea, and you see this throughout the scripts that he writes. But it's really, really clear in this particular instance the idea of sort of demystifying. Uh, people that we that we don't think about in a very human way and so you know the hitman is such a figure of you know a fear and and uh toughness and masculinity and yet the idea is that what we're seeing before the shotguns come out before or the the handguns come out before we know that this is anything involving guns is we're just seeing two guys on their way to work just Hmm. on their way to work and talking about their lives and just making small talk and chit chat, um, which, first of all, it's daring to start basically your movie, start your narrative with chit chat, with uh, with just everyday conversation. But, you know, it's also Quentin Tarantino chit chat. So it's funny and it's sharp and it's got these these little, you know, these little trills of popular culture in there. But we're beginning with the idea that these guys are not, you know, Leon the Professional, which came out that same fall, if memory serves. Um, they're not these sort of indestructible killers, you know, a la Schwarzenegger and Stallone, who, you know, let's face it, were kind of the action heroes of the day. He's setting them up as human and thus vulnerable. And the vulnerability of these two characters is vital because later on in the film, one of them is going to be killed and one of them is going to have a spiritual awakening. Hmm. Um, and so by by seeing them first, before we know that they're killers, as just co-workers, as guys, as people going to work, shooting the shit, then though that those eventual uh, twists on the characters aren't the same shock that they would be in a Stallone movie or a Schwarzenegger movie. Yeah, you know, for years, I just thought that that was just sort of funny dialogue about ordering a Le Big Mac in Europe or giving right. foot massages, but it's setting the stakes for what Vince is up against with Mia. Yes, yes. Um, and so it's very much tied to all the apprehension we feel on his behalf later in the movie. And one, right. other, one other detail about that preamble that also returns in the movie is that this isn't, this isn't a stylized vision of Los Angeles. This is pretty junky, neighborhoody vision of yes. Los Angeles, California. When they walk into the... The hotel, or actually it's the apartment building where they have mm-hmm. to do this hit on behalf of Marcellus, it's a pretty dumpy place. Yep, it is. 
Yeah, I, and I think that sense of, of Los Angeles is a lot of, it's frankly the result of just someone writing it who has lived there forever and who lived in a lot of those dumpy neighborhoods. Um, and the sort of specificity with which he talks about neighborhoods and areas, you see that a lot in this film. You see it a lot in Jackie Brown, where he goes to the lengths of like specific, like on-screen titles of like the different, you know, the city of Compton, you know, the like the 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 very it's a very particular vibe in all of the the neighborhoods in which they dwell and a little bit of it in there too. That's just sort of like jokes for Los Angelinos. Like, you know, at the end of the Bonnie situation, when they're talking about going out to breakfast with Harvey Keitel and Julia Sweeney, and he realizes how far away they live and tells him, get out of the sticks, gentlemen. Like that's a thing sort of just like as someone from Wichita, Kansas in 1994, I didn't know what the difference was in those neighborhoods. I didn't realize the sort of wide vast map that Los Angeles actually covered. I just thought it was all Los Angeles. So that's all informed by, by personal experience. The lay big Mac stuff, that's all informed by personal experience. It's fun chit chat and, and it's, it's, but it's also like Quentin Tarantino wrote this screenplay in Europe. He wrote it on a long trip to Amsterdam. So that's where the Amsterdam stuff in that, in that dialogue comes from is he was literally sitting like at a cafe in Amsterdam when he was writing that scene in longhand on his legal pad. Um, so when you talk about, you know, I think one of the mistakes that some of us, uh, uh, Tarantino wannabes made is we took away the pop culture stuff, the clever chit chat, whatever, whatever. And then we had to get past that to make personal films even in this genre exercise, he's still doing personal material. He's still drawing from his personal experience, from his life in Los Angeles, from his observations while traveling abroad, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I don't think, until I read your book, I didn't realize how suffused the creation of the script was in Amsterdam, that he really yeah. was maybe taking a break post-Pulp Fiction, and um, that it, it just these details couldn't help but become a part of the story, and they, they actually make great little details for the story. Totally. And and a lot of the sort of European, the general European flavor of the film was born out of, you know, before he took that break specifically to write the movie, he went on basically a world tour with Reservoir Dogs. He's talked about this. He had never left the United States before that film started going out to, to film festivals. And so he took the opportunity, like any European, Asian, any uh, foreign film festival that took Reservoir Dogs, he went there uh, as a way to get a, a paid sort of uh, see the world experience on, on the dime of these film festivals. He would go to any foreign film festival that was showing it so he could sort of see the world with his movie and have that experience. And so a lot that's, you know, Reservoir Dogs is, very, is, is a very insular film. And I feel like Pulp Fiction is a much more sort of seasoned, exotic, European-flavored film. It's funny how even as Tarantino is, is, is famously influenced by film, you know, influenced by sitting on the couch or sitting in the video store and watching movies, that so much of his personal life came into this. And in fact, I know he was out on the road because, again, I couldn't say this when I'm interviewing anybody else, Jason, but Tom Davis, my longtime friend who appeared in my day in your film, My Day in the Barrel, ran into yep. Tarantino in the airport during this phase when when he was living in Sweden. And so, <laughs> yeah, it's it's just strange that there was a time when you you could just be a random guy from Kansas living in Sweden, and hey, there's there's Quentin Tarantino. He made that cool movie Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> just floating through, just passing through. Yeah. 
Well, let's let's jump into the the first story of the uh, what did what was the word you ca- you called it before the the triptych. Okay, the, the first of the triptych, um, which is I forget the title now, but it's basically it's Vincent and Mia going right. to Jack Rabbit Slims and and coming into trouble. Um, yes. And it actually, it, it starts on the first scene that I found slow in the movie, which is when we don't see Marcellus's face, we see this Band-Aid on the back of his head, and he's giving this long, threatening speech to Butch, and we're yep. not really sure who Butch is, and, and it's, in this, it's in this bar where, where Jules and Vincent later show up. So why do you think the choice was to begin the first of the three stories with a really dialogue or actually monologue scene? I mean, I think what he's doing there is is it, it, at this point we're still sort of table setting, um, and so he's he if 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 he didn't put that there, then he would have had to put it at the beginning of the second story, and I think it's better for the second story to start where it does, which is right at, you know after the um, the 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 fight. Um, you can get away with a long monologue like that at the beginning of the movie when we're still sort of situating who everyone is. And I think he's also sort of deliberately fuzzing us a little bit. Like we're still, we're still trying to understand relationships. We're still trying to get a handle on what the story is. And I think in a, in a subtle way where he's sort of, he's making sure within the first 20 minutes, even though we're not going to get to the Butch story until, you know, 40, 50 minutes later that we're getting at least a sample of what, of the strands that were that we will eventually follow throughout the rest of the film. And then, you know, to shoot it from behind is, is a choice to keep Marcellus Wallace enigmatic and unknowable and scary. Where did that bandaid come from? Why did, what is that scar? What is the story? Why can't I see his face? All of that, you know, combined with this, the timber of his voice and the sort of molasses drawl that Ving Rhames has and uses to great effect makes the stakes of what's happening on the date higher. Because if, if we didn't have that scene, we would only know from Jules's story how scary Marcellus is. But now we've, we've experienced what a scary figure he is, and that, that will come into play later. Yeah, that's a good point. It sort of sets up double duty too, because yes. um, in a weird way, um, we've we've mentioned how, and obviously this interview is going to be full of spoilers. But Vincent ends up dying um, at the hands of of uh, of of Bruce of Butch, and yep. um, he actually is really rude to Butch in that scene. And so, so the, it's almost like there's that that last confrontation is a little bit more satisfying because of the arbitrary hostility that yes. Vincent shows in this scene. And then that's just straightforward narrative. For the film nerds who wonder if maybe the Band-Aid is covering uh, Marcellus's neck because his soul escaped, um, there's also the, the question, well, did, did, um, did Butch key Vincent's car, which is something he talks about in the very next scene when he's at, when he's at the heroin dealer's house. Yes, yes, which I maintain he did. He ab- there's no reason for that scene to for that line of dialogue to be in there unless Butch went outside and keyed his car immediately after that interaction. Yeah, and so then we have this this, this setup with Lance and his wife, and this mm-hmm. is, this is a funny thing because it's one of many domestic situations in Pulp Fiction that are sort of funny, and it almost works like the surf rock or the banal conversations on the way to to hitmen occasions. Where basically these couples, um, Lance and his wife, are having a very normal domestic flight fight. You know, they're, they're just sort of yelling at each other over particulars. Mm-hmm. Yet it's yet it's also a heroin deal. 
Right, exactly. Um, and and again, it's that sort of humanization. That's you know, okay, this guy's a drug dealer, but he also you know <laughs> pickers with his old lady all the time. Um, that stuff is fun. The thing that I that I always like about that scene, aside from the sort of you know thematic narrative stuff that we're talking about, is that um, and I I asked her about this because I got to interview her and got the confirmation. Uh, Pam Greer read for the role that Rosanna Arquette plays. Hmm. Um, of Lance's girlfriend just because Quentin Tarantino wanted to work with her so bad because he had, you know, grown up on Pam Greer movies. He didn't really have a good role for her uh, in this movie. And I think he he had her in, you know, mostly, I think, to meet her um, and to to connect with her. They determined that she wasn't a good fit for that role because. Eric Stoltz would just would shrink next to her in a in a in a domestic fight situation like there would be no doubt who wore uh, the, the pants in that particular family. And so he just sort of made a note that's like, OK, well, she's not right for this, but we're going to work together in the future and told her that huh. when he talked to her and then ended up, of course, writing Jackie Brown for her. Do you know why um, heroin was the drug of choice? Because it's interesting how it feels like there was a little bit of heroin chic. This could be an urban myth, but it feels like there was a little bit of heroin chic after Pulp Fiction, and it coincided with grunge, for which heroin was like the drug of choice, um, including uh, among Kurt Cobain, who died the year Pulp Fiction came out. So do you happen to know why, why um, Tarantino chose heroin? I haven't read anything where he where he got into that specifically, but I think... Uh, you know, if I had to guess, I would say number one, again, that European influence. And number two, <laughs> you can make a cooler montage of somebody prepping a heroin shot hmm. than you can of somebody rolling a joint or laying out lines to snort. I think it's the most cinematic drug um, for the kind of, of, of movie he's making. Um, and then also offers the double... I mean, ultimately, it had to be something that would be life-threatening if it were mistaken for something else. And so it pro I would imagine it was mostly due to the, the, the practicalities required of where that story was going to go. Yeah, and having rewatched the movie, I was he uses super close-ups when he shows that, yeah. that heroin montage. It's, it's, it's sort of a shot framing that isn't present elsewhere in the movie. No, he usually tends to prefer like a medium to a medium wide. He hardly ever even puts his his uh, his characters in tight close-ups in, in sort of dialogue scenes. He tends to keep the frame pretty loose, but in that sequence to sort of you know convey the intensity of uh, of the high for Vincent, he goes in very very tight. Yeah, actually, in another podcast, it was the first podcast of this season. I was talking to Ari Shafir, the comedian, who said that apparently the direction for John Travolta, who didn't want to use heroin but wanted to know what it was like, said. It's like drinking a bunch of tequila and sitting in a warm bath, yet when you walk around, you're still in the warm bath. <laughs> That's great. So great. so such a funny detail. And actually, until you were talking just now, yeah, narratively, it makes sense for it to be heroin because it sort of ups the stakes of things. Um, and, you know, there, there's something very realistic in those super close-ups of the heroin, plus sort of the domestic situation that really humanizes the drug dealer character and his wife. Then we move on to Jackrabbit Slims, which seems like it's a, this step in the movie land. When I was rewatching Pulp Fiction, it felt to me like Jackrabbit Slims is a place that couldn't stay in business be <laughs> because like all the impersonators, you know, it's full of normal people drinking $5 shakes and other food that isn't that expensive. Yet there's just all of these seemingly expensive impersonators 
occupying this 50s theme bar, which feels like right after we have this realistic scene of domestic squabble at a drug dealer's house, we're, we're back in movie land. So what do you make of Jackrabbit Slims? I mean, he said the Jackrabbit Slims, he just he got tired of going to, to half-ass 50 di- 50s diners and he wanted to make the ultimate 50s diner. So, yes, it's a it's a it's a cinematic flourish. Um, it's it's him having a good time and sort of populating uh, a set with things he thinks are cool. Um, it is important to note, though, like five dollar shake, as noted in the dialogue, was actually quite expensive in 1994. Mm. It it does seem like the prices were a bit inflated. If if the uh, if the milkshake price is anything to go off, I remember being shocked by a five dollar milkshake <laughs> in 1994. I that's like par for the course now, of course. Right. Well, I guess King's X Restaurant in Wichita, Kansas, didn't have five dollar shakes. No. Um, nor did it have uh, twist contests. So no. <laughs> it, it, it was sort of this this surreal place. And I know that there's a big cinematic influence on that. But we sort of go from – does it fade to black after the twist contest? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because it, it, kind of, it kind of fades out in the middle of it to the to fading up to them arriving back at Mia's apartment with uh, with the, the trophy that she, she so pined for. Yeah, and throughout this entire sequence, it's interesting that, again, I didn't think about it in, specifically until I rewatched it. If Mia had been single um, as a character during this encounter, she would be a very flirtatious person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so what do you make of this, of this arc? I mean, we have, we have um, Vincent standing in the bathroom basically talking himself out of his own sexual attraction to her. Um, right. Which also gives her time to, to accidentally take the heroin. Uh, and, and so what do you make of this overdose scene and all the energy surrounding it? I mean, I think, first of all, again, the shift in, in tone and pace is key because the movie definitely slows down and lets us go on this date with them in, in something akin to real time in a way that's almost like, I don't know, like, you know, before sunrise came out the next year. I mean, it's almost like that, like for a good 15 minutes or so of the movie, we're just sitting with them in, in the booth and it could be be a romantic comedy it could be you know a character driven drama we're just we we're allowed to indulge in the, the the rhythms of of the first date and in those awkward silences that she talks about and in what is very clearly an attraction um because they're both attractive people hmm. um and, and then to shift from that very leisurely uh exchange into this high intensity terrifying overdose sequence you know it's it is a real sort of yin and yang moment and you're going you know the 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 camera setups and the framing is is very locked in and leisurely um on the date scene when they get into uh lance's house it's handheld it's all in one take it's very you know it's it's fast and jarring and scary um you know cars are roaring around corners it's it's i think it's a very deliberate you know, he he sort of lulls us into a sleep so that he can jolt us awake, almost the way that you know the adrenaline shot does to Mia, which is really the the the, the take home shot of the movie. That's that's like the the water cooler conversation yes. shot of that movie. In Reservoir Dogs, it was the the ear cutting off scene, right? And actually, when I was writing my script for the for the asylum, and nothing happened of it. They actually asked for an equivalent of the of the nail <laughs> to the heart scene, right? Um, so, do you think do you think Tarantino wrote the needle to the heart scene with the notion that it would be talked about or did that just come from his from his rolodex of of a million film ideas i think 
and again, this is pure conjecture. I am of the opinion that it is that he wrote that entire sequence around doing the adrenaline to the heart scene just because it was something he wanted to do in a movie. Um, the adrenaline to the heart is a story that's told in a film called American Boy, um, which is a, a short, like 45 minute documentary that Martin Scorsese made hmm. um, after. I want to say after Taxi Driver. I, my 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 chronology might be a little off. It might have it might have been after it might have come out after The Last Waltz. But in that same like 76, 77, 78 period. It's a film that's basically a just a a a night of long conversation, you know, sort of edited down into this 40 minutes with this guy Steve Prince who appears in Taxi Driver. He plays the gun dealer in the hotel room that sells Travis, you know, all of his guns and his holsters. Um Steve Prince was just sort of this um, uh, 70s rock scene rock on tour. He was a road manager for a long time and, you know, he had been an addict. And, and so he had accumulated just all of these stories that Martin Scorsese thought was interesting. And so he made this documentary of just Steve Prince telling his stories. It's a terrific little movie. It's, it's not that hard to find. You can find it on YouTube. But one of the stories he tells is of using a, a shot of adrenaline to the heart, to, to, to getting someone out of, uh, an overdose. I think he even mentions the detail of the magic marker that my memory could be failing me on that. It's been a few years since I've seen it, but it's like, it's a hundred percent that short. There was a VHS tape of Martin Scorsese short films that was commercially released that had that. And this other one called Italian American that was that I, video archives, a hundred percent had that tape. Quentin Tarantino, a hundred percent rented that tape watched that short film and said, I'm going to put that story in a movie one day. I'm going to dramatize that in a movie one day because it's only a verbal story in, in the Scorsese documentary. And he dramatized it in this film. And I, I would not be surprised if the entire segment was built around that moment. Well, if he did build it around that moment, it's it's a really uh, it's a good story to create around that moment, just because yes. it's this is this is a, a truly a very memorable sequence in the movie, and it and it plays. I'd be curious to know what you think of of, of other of the three stories, but it, um, that's the climax, and then there's this denouement where Vince right. is walking Mia home for the second time <laughs> that night, yes. and then and then they come back to the joke. It's 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 yes. actually. There's so much smart writing in this. We're basically a question that went unanswered while they were flirting gets answered in the denouement where she tells them yes. the horrible vaudeville joke. Yes, exactly. It's beautiful. Um, yeah. The, and, and, but again, in the, uh, in, in the, the magic marker thing and in the whole conversation about who's going to give the shot again, you see this and this, I don't mean to, to sound like a broken record, but it's a recurring theme through the film. It's a recurring theme through the work. The idea of taking these heightened, um, dramatic moments and mining humor out of the everydayness of them, about the ordinariness of them, about the way that actual people in these situations would act and react to each other in them. Um, they don't actually know what they're doing. They're trying to figure out the smart way to do it. Do, where is her heart? You know, the, that whole back and forth is, is of the same idea as, you know, clear back to that opening conversation about the Big Mac. Yeah, and then then like Vincent, oh, you want me to stab her three times? I mean, it's just yes. it, it's just it's this this delightful parsing of conversation, which which happens yep. a lot. I mean, yep. from the foot massage conversation, there's a lot of examination of language itself and right. communication in this movie. Um, yep. It's funny that uh, we we move on to the is the last scene. Does does the, does that mini story end right there at the door to Mia's house? I don't remember exactly. 
if memory serves, yes, because then we go to Christopher Walken. Right, which is the one scene I before I saw this movie at Cinemas West in Wichita, Kansas, with a full bladder, by the way, in 1994, mm-hmm. I was told that this scene was hilarious. Um, <laughs> and, and based on the sense of humor of the friend that told me about this, and I was trying to not have any spoilers going to Pulp Fiction, but I guessed where the watch was hidden during the movie. That, <laughs> that was the only part, of, only part of the movie that was that was ruined for me. But years what? later. You know, at the time, it was this funny scene, and of course, Christopher Walken is so good in that speech. But it yeah. also it sets the stakes of Fabian's mistake and and of Butch's you know necessity of having to go back into a very dangerous situation. Right. I mean, I think that's in in a lot of ways that's the genius of this screenplay is that it feels as you're watching it the first time very sort of big and shaggy and rambling, and that there are these little detours that are fun. But you know, what what are we doing here and so forth? But after you've seen the whole thing, it becomes very clear that it's actually a very tight screenplay where there is nothing that's in there solely for effect, that even the 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 slightest little offhand moments are there for some purpose or another. And initially what looks like just like a funny weirdo Christopher Walken monologue. And the thing to remember, too, is that like that was not really a thing yet. Um, the previous year he had done True Romance written by Quentin Tarantino, but directed by Tony Scott, which has this incredible two scene between Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper. Um, and really was sort of the beginning of the, the, the cult canonization of Christopher Walken. It was happening quietly a couple of years earlier in things like the King of New York or whatever, but him sort of repositioning himself from, you know, a, a, a quirky but mostly serious actor in the late 70s and, and 1980s into this sort of like wild, unpredictable character, sometimes caricature that he has become. And it feels, again, conjecture, but it feels very much like this scene was written specifically for Christopher Walken based on Quentin Tarantino watching what Christopher Walken did with that scene in True Romance. Yeah, it's it's um, rewatching it. I'm, I'm. It's just a very well done scene, and of course yeah. the boy is pretty much silent the whole time. But you know, young Butch. But it, it really does set up what Butch is up against. That why there's he absolutely cannot. And yep. Tar- Tarantino must have had fun when he was like. I imagine him thinking, well, well, what can what will make Butch have to go back to the apartment? He can't <laughs> not go back back to the apartment. Well, and yep. so he invents this prisoner of war camp where two different people had to keep a watch up their ass for years at a time so that Butch yeah. has to go back and get it. So yeah. um, we don't and really... also And also really, I think this is worth knowing too when you talk about influence, also really sort of savvily um, using the baggage that Christopher Walken brings to that scene because one of his best known roles to that time was a, was in The Deer Hunter as a prisoner of war. Um, so he's sort of you know just just recalling that just very, very elegantly. Yeah, you know, I think, and and this is something that your book does in many cases, is just sort of tracing these trails of influence in a way, and sometimes they do double or triple duty, um, which is interesting. Um, Now, we don't see the fight wherein Butch kills somebody else, um, uh, so there's sort of a misdirection, and then we have this scene that I'm curious to know your take on, which is the Esmeralda Villalobos scene. Because Villa Lobos is sort of a weird person. Again, rewatching mm-hmm. it, 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 like the first time I saw it, I thought she was kind of sexy. And then I mm-hmm. watched it again, and it's like, this is a weird person who just met a guy <laughs> who killed somebody in a boxing ring, and she just right. wants to know what it feels like. Like, what do you right. think, what role do you think Esmeralda Villa Lobos plays in this movie? And why did, why did Tarantino put her in there? 
I mean, the the direct answer to why he put her in there was that this was a character he saw in a short film that was on the festival circuit while he was on the festival circuit with Reservoir Dogs um, and just liked the actress and liked the character and sort of wrote this for her to play a similar character in his film. From a, a narrative perspective, I think it's it's just it's a fun character moment. It's a chance for us to see Butch interacting with someone before we see him interacting with Fabian. And it's a, instead of the, you know, a lot of what makes Tarantino's work interesting are, are the scenes that he chooses not to show us because we've seen them a million times. And we've seen the scene where the boxer who's supposed to take the fall and instead fights back and kills the guy. Like we've seen that, that scene before, just like we've seen the jewelry store heist that he chooses not to show us in reservoir dogs before Mm. he's more interested in the before and the after. Um, and so I think he decided that it was more interesting to have Butch talk about what happened in there and the way that he felt after and the resentment that he had that fueled that decision. than it would be to just give us yet another, you know, boxing scene where this happens and this happens and this happens. Um, and then once he made that decision, I think honestly he just well here, I had there was an interesting character. I'd like to see what she's like with him in this scene, and they just kind of went from there. Yeah, that, that's a good point. That it, it's sort of her weirdness and her the tension in in where exactly she's coming from allows him to give some expository information about his own mental state at the time. Yeah, um, and be open with a stranger in ways that sometimes you aren't even with people you're familiar with. Which, which I found interesting on first viewing, and again, I watched it as a young man, so I was sort of thrown off when there's this Villa Lobos who's weird but kind of sexy, and then Fabian, who's sort of this nerdy, uh, annoying girlfriend that he has, and I think it, it humanizes Butch that obviously he really loves this woman who's sort of quirky and not, is not a standard jock girlfriend. Um, right. But I suspect, and, and I know just from a little bit of internet chatter, that Fabian isn't universally loved by people who love Pulp Fiction. Uh-huh. And, and so uh, why do you think uh, Bruce Willis, Butch, has this French girlfriend who's, who's a little bit dippy and, and is a little bit has trouble coping and, and clearly forgot the watch that his dad had to put up his ass in Vietnam for, for five years? Why do you think, what purpose does she serve? I well, first of all, I am not a Fabian hater. I think she's delightful. I think Maria de Medeiros, who plays her, is delightful. And I, th- but you, you're you're right that this is a section I don't even remember it at the time that some of the film's detractors were like, "Why am I in this motel room with them for 20 minutes? What's happening?" Um, which I I understand that impatience. I think I, again, I think the character is who the character is. Number one, because he wanted to work with Maria de Medeiros. Um, he liked Henry and June and both her and Uma Thurman starred in that film. Um, and I think that again is another place where this world cinema European vacation influence comes into play that instead of giving her a sort of standard, you know, dumb blonde girlfriend or something where you could see, you know, a, a lesser filmmaker would have done a cheap joke about that. He thought it, it would be fun to make her this, you know, this sort of uh, quirky type um, and to let and to and to really that the film has the patience to let us just sort of live in their relationship with them the same way that it lets us sort of sit at the table with Vincent and Mia earlier. You know, that's all the stuff that you would cut to get this movie down to a standard 110 minutes. Um, but it it makes the characters more 
interesting. It gives them more dimension. It tells us more about who they are as people. Um, and in her defense, she doesn't know where the watch has been because he says there is that line where he says, I don't have time to go into it, but he went to a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, so I don't think she's fully aware of the uh, of of the implications of, of her forgetfulness in that particular instance. I think it's I think and if you don't like the character, and you don't like the relationship then the movie doesn't work for you on this level. And that's fine. I think that the fact that we spend so much time getting a sense of their specific, you know, lovey dovey uh, baby talk sweetness relationship makes the, the interaction between them in, in the morning when he realizes that she's forgotten the watch more poignant because I, I don't want him to get mad at her. And I'm glad when he doesn't, when he says, you know, when he sort of explodes or whatever, and then he says, it's fine, it's fine. And he's like making the decision to like, to not make her feel any worse, I think is a really lovely little moment. And the, the kind of relationship moment that we sometimes don't even get in relationship movies. Yeah, I guess I guess that that's a good point. Like she's less disposable than the dumb blonde girlfriend. So Exactly. If you had a dumb blonde who was like buffing her nails and worried about her heels yes. who forgot the watch, it would be one thing. But when you have this sort of quirky French girl who talks about what she wants to have for breakfast and, and sort of imagines pancakes and asks for oral right. pleasure then you get um, sort of a less disposable girlfriend yeah. um, and a more interesting butch, really. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think that's key, too, that like that up to that point, we only know Butch as a tough guy, as a boxer, and frankly, as a killer. And based on what he says to Esmeralda Villalobos, a, a not very remorseful killer. And so to then get not only this, you know, very sensitive, vulnerable uh, variation on the character, but also, frankly, a very sensitive, vulnerable side of Bruce Willis, who, you know, was not that guy really by then. He had started out as sort of playing this wise guy on Moonlighting, and then he had become this action hero. Um, and here we're seeing a side of him that he that he wasn't playing much. Um, and it's one that he wears well, I think. Well, I mentioned urban myths earlier, and sometimes in this pre-internet era, it's hard to tell what's true and what isn't. But I know that there was a certain hipster demographic of Pulp Fiction fans who reportedly booed his name when it appeared at the beginning of the movie. Right. Um, I, I, I feel like the urban myth places this in Austin, Texas, but stood up and cheered when he came down with the samurai sword in the pawn shop scene. <laughs> that sounds right. In Austin, yes. That's... That would make sense. So, so it feels like we have this 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 film that sort of re revitalized the career of John Travolta, but then it also reinvented the career career of Bruce Willis, not only through the samurai scene, but through through him as this guy who's just not a very predictable romantic guy, a guy who has a lot of patience for his weird French girlfriend. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it reminded us that Bruce Willis was an actor, like he and he is, like there he's doing in he's doing funny and interesting things on Moonlighting, and you know when he's when he's gone to the trouble of, of showing up and doing like straight drama. He delivers. Um, the, you're right. There was such a focus on, Oh, we're, we're, you know, it's the comeback movie for John Travolta. It's the comeback movie for John Travolta, but Bruce Willis's last two or three movies had tanked. It was the comeback movie for Bruce Willis too. Yeah. And it really, yeah, I guess it returned him into Bruce Willis is not just an action hero. He is an actor. Um, yes. Sort of, sort of um, impression. And actually, after he leaves Fabian, there's a really interesting sequence that is 
a fairly typical sequence where where he sort of finds the, he makes pop tarts. He goes back into his apartment. He he gets his watch. He makes pop tarts and realizes that there's an Uzi with a silencer on it on his counter. Uzi or a Mac Ten. I'm sorry if there's any gun nuts in my audience who <laughs> want to be specific. Then he kills John Travolta right in the middle of the movie. Vincent Vega dies. Yep. Then he goes off, and I'm curious to know. Um, when we have a second here, what you think of these coincidences? Because he, he comes in and he coincidentally comes in while John Travolta, Vincent Vega, is taking a crap. And then he coincidentally is at a stop sign when when uh, Ving Rhames, Marcellus Wallace, is coming back with donuts for the stakeout. And then he runs him over, which leads into one of the most famously bizarre scenes of this whole movie and possibly the 1990s, which, right. is, which is the pawn shop basement, um, bring out the gimp get medieval on your ass and a bunch of other catchphrases from the time sequence. So I'm, so, so I'm curious to know both um, about that sequence uh, with the gun and the coincidence in the apartment. And then this weird transition into this deeply, deeply bizarre pawn shop. Right. I mean, I think coincidences are, and I, and this is a, a sort of a, a philosophical reading of the movie that that you know we we probably don't have time for. But I mean, I think there's the the fact that coincidence plays that kind of a role in the narrative is rooted in the fact that there is more that there's so much talk and more talk than usual in his films about the ideas of fate and about you know sort of where, who we are and who we're supposed to be and where we're supposed to be and some some things that get much more explicit in the third section. Um, and in the bit with the, you know, with the dodged bullets and all, all of that. Um, but again, also with him, because there are so many sort of influences and ideas that are sort of fighting for headspace in his head and thus in his scripts, there's also, you know, multiple choice answers to all of this stuff. I mean, yes, it's a coincidence that he's part that he's sitting there when Marcellus Wallace walks in front of the car. But that also happens because that's a famous moment in Psycho that he clearly wanted to recreate where Marion Crane is sitting in the car when their boss walks in front of it. Um, so all of that stuff sort of sort of comes into the stew and then comes out as Pulp Fiction. Um, and then speaking of stew, you know, the, what you're seeing again is just is in the, the pawn shop sequence, I feel is just, it's a shift in the movie. It's a remote control clicker change where we've gone from, you know, whatever this, uh, you know, European romance movie is into like deliverance into, yeah. you know, uh, this, this bizarre, you know, backwoods basement torture situation. Um, and I think it just speaks to the skill with which he can navigate tone and narrative that by that point in the movie, all of us who are watching it don't question it. We're like, sure. Yep. Okay. Here we are. We're in the basement with, with the hillbillies and we're going to do this. Okay, fine. Um, and you know, it's a big swing and a lesser filmmaker could not have pulled that swing off, but he does. Well, it does some interesting double duty too, because in addition to, like sort of the weird deliverance style scenes and and this this uh, delightful revenge where basically Bruce Willis sort of becomes a hero in his own movie by deciding to stay and rescue Marcellus. Right. It also sort of solves his problem where basically right. he, he valiantly saves Marcellus with whom he has a very deep rift in a way yep. that Marcellus is honorable enough that um, he realizes that he can't, that there's rules, you know, the, the, that Butch can't stay in Los Angeles. The basic, but basically his beef is over because of right. this. Right. Well, and in that way, you're getting into sort of one of the things that I think is most thematically interesting about the movie, which is that all three of these are, in essence, they're redemption stories. You know, that each of these, 
characters commits a sin or contemplates a sin or does some does wrong by someone and then saves them and in doing so saves themselves so you know in the in the the first section vincent inadvertently or not almost kills mia which would certainly kill himself um, but in the process of his his quick thinking and his decisive action, manages to save her life, and in doing so, he saves his own. Uh, in the Butch section, it's the same thing that you know he's he has put himself into a situation where he where he would be killed by any reasonable means uh, if Butch or his men should find him, which they probably would. Um, and instead, he finds himself in this situation where he can walk out the door. He could leave Marcellus to this situation. And instead, he goes back in and in saving Marcellus, saves himself. Yeah, I just wonder, this is a, this is sort of an aside question, but are there any wasted scenes in this movie? I mean, the more I dig into it, the more it seems like so much work is being done in so many situations of the movie. I don't think there is. I mean, again, if you were... If you wanted to trim some time, you could trim some stuff out of Jackrabbit Slims. You could trim some stuff out of the motel room. But those are the, you know, frankly, the character and relationship touches that I think do matter. I think it's important that we have the that those relationships are clearly defined and that the emotional stakes are present between those characters in order for those sections to pay off the way they do. Yeah. Yeah, there's an interesting return. It's, it's not a character return in this, uh, in the, in basically the dungeon rape scene where surf music comes back. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't a surf song playing when they're assaulting Marcellus? It's kind of a surf song, yes. You know, I think he just sort of decided that the sound of Pulp Fiction was the sound of surf rock. Um, now, the interesting side story about that, which I confirmed with the music supervisor of. The film, uh, this woman, Karen Rackman, who um, was sort of the house music supervisor for Jersey Films, which produced Pulp Fiction, uh, Tarantino's original first choice for that scene was My Sharona, hmm. um, and he, which was a song that he wanted because he felt that the, the beat was a good, and this is a direct quote, quote, a good sodomy beat, end quote. Jesus. Um, that the, you know, the na 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 you know, he thought that would that would fit um, into the rhythm of, of the action. But um, Karen Rackman had already licensed my Sharona for reality bites from Jersey films, which came out about five months before Pulp Fiction. And when he found that out, Tarantino like immediately said, okay, well we have to find a different song because that's reality bites song now. And, and I don't want that song and I don't want people to think of reality bites when they hear that song in my movie. Um, so he went and found this much more obscure sort of surf rock song that also had a, a, a chaos to it that I think is frankly more appropriate to the scene. Yeah, it really, it really gave it a surreal feel. Yes, um, yes, it, exactly. it feels like it those, it. those wild saxophones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way that feels more effective than My Sharona, although I haven't seen it with My Sharona. So um, it, it just felt like it's that juxtaposition where you have right. um, one. A dramatic or emotional texture that's sort of going against the music that accompanies it and it makes it creates this weirder this weirder situation so yep yep okay so let, let's talk about the fourth part is the bonnie situation um yep I, I forgot like the bonnie situation is another 
phrase that entered the parlance of our times. I mean, there's just there's just so many little <laughs> like get medieval on his ass. You know, there's these there's these phrases that stick with you. Yeah. Um, and so again, it's it's this it's this domestic situation where the stakes for Jimmy, and I'm just sort of delighted by Jimmy, um, who is mm-hmm. Quentin, Tar- who is played by Quentin Tarantino. But for him, the stakes is his marriage. Again, we have all these right. male-female relationships. And, and what Jimmy is most worried about is losing his wife because his thug friends come over with a dead body in their car. Right. This sort of black comic situation um, that, you know, born out of, of cleanup. Again, out of sort of the demystifying, humanizing details of this work, like, you do like uh, these these are guys who are around guns all the time and one might go off and these are guys who kill people purposely or accidentally and there might be times where they have to do some cleaning and you can't drive around with you know a bloody corpse in your car so what do you do um again there are a few sort of interesting influences in this scene um the uh harvey keitel character this is my favorite touch of this scene the harvey keitel scene Uh, character of the wolf who you know this was in this sort of early period where harvey keitel was just in all of quentin's movies um the harvey keitel character was based on a character that uh jean renault played in la femme nikita uh the the lou basson film um in 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 between when i believe when quentin wrote the character and with Harvey Keitel in mind, and when Pulp Fiction came out, Harvey Keitel played the that same character in the American remake of La Femme Nikita, uh, which was a film called Point of No Return with Bridget Fonda, who ended up co-starring in Jackie Brown. Um, the Bonnie situation itself is uh, a phrase that was used in, I believe, the Reservoir Dogs screenplay, but in a line that that made it that didn't make the final cut of the film. Uh, And is, again, another example of, you know, you see in Quentin Tarantino is a recycler, not only of other people's films, but of his own. And when you read early drafts of of some of his screenplays, there are scenes that he didn't use there that he would end up dropping into other things. Um, And then again, you know, his his only appearance, his appearance in the film is in the character of Jimmy, um, who from the, the lore from the set has it was, you know, he and Eric Stoltz were the two bathrobe characters. Hmm. And uh he had a hard time deciding which of he knew he wanted to play one of the bathrobe characters and couldn't decide which one. And he ultimately went with this one. And then he and Eric Stoltz had a, uh, a competition on set to see who could wear their bathrobe the longest. That's the story. I'm, I'm not sure that it's true, but it's kind of disgusting. <laughs> There's, I mean that the Jimmy detail and, and Quentin Tarantino is just such a nerdy, quirky presence on screen. Um, yeah. and as I think we discovered at the Oscars that year, just a, a goofy guy in general, he has one of the most yes. awkward acceptance speeches of an Oscar I've ever seen before. But, um, yeah. then you have these funny situations. One of my favorite lines, one of my sleeper favorite lines in the movie is when Jules and Vincent are washing their hands and obviously, Jimmy is Jules' friend, so he's more concerned about the situation. Vincent just yes. is having a bad day. And yes. then he's here, did you wash your hands? And he's like, you saw me wash them. And, <laughs> and Jules says, I saw you get them wet, which is such a mom line, right? Yes. That's, yes. that's so much something that somebody's mother would tell a six-year-old. Um, right. and, and so I just love that exchange. Yeah, no, I mean, and that... 
and sort of the idea of of him being um, concerned as as Jimmy's proxy, as being being worried that Jimmy's going to get in trouble for this, and this weird way that they do sort of become children, um, and the way that almost all of the the male female domestic relationships in this movie really are quote unquote tough guys, you know, drug dealers, etc who are absolutely terrified of their wives and are just trying to like not rock the boat at home is, is a, a, again, a, a really nice humanistic little touch. And it's funny that Jules and Vincent get hosed down in the backyard, like a couple of grubby kids in this, yes. in this sequence yes. as well. <laughs> That's a good point. Yes. Yeah. So, so there's, a, there, there's a lot of situations. There's so much domesticity for a movie that was written in Amsterdam. Right. I'm not sure right. what his, what his uh, situation was was like there, but there's just a lot of very human male female relationships and anxieties and little power dynamics going on here. Yes, yes, definitely, I agree. So, um, so th- there's sort of a denouement once Wolf comes in and solves the, um, the 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 Bonnie situation, and then the then the rest of the movie is pretty much this very talky scene. Which was which was talked about. It's um, I remember watching late night TV and people scratching their heads over this quoting the Bible speech and and Jules' decision to walk the earth. Um, what do you think of this of this extended coffee shop scene at the end? I mean, I think it's I think it's it's brilliant on several levels. Um, I'll never forget the sort of jolt of electricity that I felt the first time in that sequence when they cut away to um, Tim Roth asking for coffee, that that same shot that we saw at the very beginning of the movie. And this is one of the luxuries of a film that's as long as Pulp Fiction, is that by that point in the movie, it's been two hours since we saw that scene and since we saw those characters. And I, for one, at least the first time I saw it, had genuinely forgotten about them. Like, I, it's, it's this weird little standalone, standalone prologue that you just sort of take on at face value at the beginning of the movie because, again, that sort of disorientation that we talked about earlier where we don't know who everyone is, we don't know what the relationship is to each other, we don't know where the story's going. And I, I remember sitting up in my chair when it cut to them in what we know is like a minute and a half away from them staging a robbery and realizing, oh, right, those characters, they're about to come back. This is going to go badly, you know, because because of the time we spent with with Jules and Vincent. So the the idea of that structural touch is ingenious, you know, to to show us part of a scene at the beginning of the movie from an angle and in a conversation that's entirely removed from when we're going to revisit it at the end. That's a great touch. That's something again, that I think a lot of lesser copycats, including myself took from that sequence. It really was a, a, a masterstroke in that he created tension throughout this very dialogue heavy scene. It's an interesting scene, you know, Jules longing for redemption and his reflection on quoting the Bible and, Yeah. And the fact that like, you know, there is yelling and there is chaos, but that the bulk of that scene is two people with guns on each other or on other people who are speaking, who don't raise their voice, who are speaking very softly, who are talking to each other as calmly and as collectedly as I am talking to you right now. And that's such an unconventional choice to play the scene that laid back even though it, it and yet to still create tension and to still create some degree of dread and to still have suspense present um 
And then it's also just the speech itself is beautiful. And Samuel L. Jackson delivers it with such grace um, and and such uh, lived in beauty. I don't I, it's hard. I, I still can't quite pinpoint what he's doing in in that speech and in, and in a character you know, in a speech that was written for him, like in a thing we forget, it seems like Samuel L. Jackson has been part of our landscape just for as long as any of us have been aware of things. But this came, you know, in 1994, Samuel L. Jackson was still trying to, to elevate from character actor to movie star. He'd had some juicy roles. He, you know, he won an award, a supporting award, which they never give at Cannes for Jungle Fever, and he had done a few other things, but like the year before this, he had starred in National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1 and uh, Amos and Andrew, which was a Nicholas, lesser Nicholas Cage vehicle. These sort of like broad, bad comedies. He had such a specific energy, but it seemed like it was hard. It was, we were, those of us who were paying attention to him were waiting for there to be a role that was prominent that was able to use his very particular energy. And clearly Quentin Tarantino saw that conundrum and solved it, you know, in, in writing this role for him um, and, and casting him in it. Yeah. It's, it's a remarkable casting role and a, and a remarkable moment for Jules, because it seems like he's most in control when deciding not to kill the Tim Roth character, you know? Yes. Um, that and 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 the full weight of that decision and explaining the full weight of that decision is is really something and 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 is what makes this movie about more than just you know a couple of hitmen running around killing people. Yeah, yeah, and and, it, and it's almost a part of his arc. I mean, he has a very strong arc because he decides mm-hmm. to become a more spiritual person. But it's like he becomes a more fully confident version of himself he like he knows where he wants to go so well that he's at a he's at sort of ends at a high point in that movie absolutely and i think that's why the decision to 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 shuffle the stories into this order was so vital you know that the if this film were laid out chronologically the movie would end with you know with butch and fabian like literally riding off into the sunset um and again, it's a redemption and it's a nice moment, but the weight of Jules' redemption is so much heavier, you know, and the, the, what he, the, 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 the moment that he arrives at by the end of that scene and by the end of that speech and by the time him and Vincent are walking out of that diner it's so much more moving and so much more profound and such. It's just, it's a, it's a better place to end the movie. So why be bound by narrative chronology? It really is. How old was Tarantino when he, when he wrote this and directed this movie? He was older than you would think because he spent the, a lot, he spent his twenties, like sort of spinning his wheels at the video store and, um, you know, trying to get his, his, his first film made, which, you know, were a couple of different scripts that, that, that worked and did, you know, that, that sort of fell apart or that he wasn't able to, to finish or that sort of thing. But he, he was born in 1963. So he was 30, he was 30 to 31 when this film was made and released. So, I mean, young, younger than me, but you know, not the sort of like, 20-something wunderkind, you know, Orson Welles sort sort of story. He had he had been trying to make his way into the business for 
about a decade before before this landed. Um, and he knew how high his, the stakes were and, and just really stuck the landing there. Well, it feels like such a masterstroke, even for a 30 or 31-year-old. Do you, do you yeah. think any of his movies have compared to this one since? I, I go back and forth, you know, I still, I've, I've always said that I think Pulp Fiction is my favorite of his films and his best films, both because it's such a great, tight, uh, semi-flawless movie, um, and also because it, the, 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 the footprint it left was so massive, mm. uh, that it was, that it's both a great film and an important film. And I think those always sort of rise to the top as I get older. I find myself going back to Jackie Brown more often um, because that's an older man's movie. It's an older story. It's, you know, the, the, the rhythms of that film and the, the themes of that movie are so much about, you know, growing old and uh, accepting what you are and accepting your limitations and, you know, and, and what you are and aren't going to be, which is a lot of the journey I've been on as a person. Um, I find myself when I'm in the when when I'm just reaching for the shelf for a Tarantino movie, I, I I go to that one now more often. I will also say that I rewatched Pulp Fiction about ten times in the process of you know writing a book about it. So I, I also might have burned out on that one at least for a little while, and maybe it'll it'll return to that top slot uh, within a few more years. Yeah, I might have to re rewatch Jackie Brown. I've I've had trouble watching like I I just can't watch his his subsequent movies in the same spirit as Pulp Fiction because Pulp Fiction had such gravity and was so yep. such a, such a big influence on my way of, of thinking about movies in general. Um, yep. One, one quick aside uh, question, which is probably the dumbest question I'll ask in this interview before I ask a couple of big picture ones. What do you think is in the briefcase? Um, I think the MacGuffin is what's in the briefcase. Um, and if you're not familiar with that term, that's the term that Alfred Hitchcock used to describe the thing in the plot that existed so that there was a thing for the plot to exist around. Mm -hmm. And that the actual, what what the MacGuffin actually was didn't ultimately matter. Um, you know, whether it was the, the, you know, the plans or the microfilm or the the missing this or the the stolen that. Um, it's just the thing that, that the, that, that was required by the plot. I don't think Quentin Tarantino knows he's, he's said as much that what's in the briefcase is whatever you want to be in the briefcase to fuel all of this. Um, that when characters look at it and say, it's so beautiful, that's what it is to you. It's whatever you find to be so beautiful. And I don't think he actually ever decided what it was. Yeah, and another interesting detail, and that feels like the right answer. Actually, it really is a mm. MacGuffin, and I think yeah. I realized that from the beginning. But it's still, it's still a masterstroke. You know, it's just the yeah. the way people react to that briefcase is interesting. So, yeah. a, a couple more big picture questions about the film. One is about the dialogue, which was extraordinarily original feeling and unique at the time. And in fact, when Roger Ebert reviewed the movie, he said, if if situations are inventive and original, so is the dialogue. A lot of movies these days use flat functional speech. The characters say only enough to advance the plot, but the people in Pulp Fiction are in love with words for their own sake. The dialogue by Tarantino and Avery is off the wall sometimes, but that's the fun. It also means that the characters don't all sound the same. Travolta is laconic. Jackson is exact. Plummer and Roth are two dopey lovey-doveys. Keitel uses the shorthand of a busy professional. Thurman learned how to be a mall while studying soap operas. So right. I think I think it's 25 year, years later, it's hard to appreciate how original this movie sounded. 
Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's right. The, the the thing that he really is pinpointing in in that review, which I must have read a million times, um, is the what a what a breath of fresh air the movie was in that regard. In the specific like the way that characters talked, which you would hear, you know, there were a few distinctive dialogue stylists working. You know, David Mamet was making movies by then, and so on. But even his characters kind of all talk the same. Um, that, that the dialogue in this film is, is, is fresh and interesting and, and specific is important. I think the movie in general, when he's talking about, you know, the sort of way that we've gotten used to, to films functioning by that point, the thing that's really, I think, key to contextualize about when this movie came out was that we were still sort of like fumbling our way through the nineties in, in cinema after coming out of the eighties, which was a, a period where, mainstream movie making really became corporatized and where we saw the beginning of sort of product of, of, you know, Simpson Bruckheimer product and, you know, endless sequels and thing, you know, the, these films that where it was very clear that the studios were being run by corporations as opposed to like singular executives and where a lot where films were coming out just seemingly engineered to be like last year's hit and to make money. And I think that's one of the reasons that the film was such an unexpected crossover mainstream success was that audiences were just hungry for a new thing. And if you if if nothing else, and there are many other great things about it, but if nothing else, Pulp Fiction felt new. It felt edgy it felt like no other film that was in cinemas in 1994 yeah well you know peter biskin wrote famous film books about the 1970s and the 1980s but in the 1990s but not about the 1980s right so yeah he, he writes about one is uh easy writer easy writers raising bulls one is uh mm-hmm. down and dirty pictures and actually ironically i think he compares in down and dirty pictures he compares pulp fiction to star wars just in the surprise hit sea change it engendered. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 exact change that it wrought is very different, and the roots of it are very different. But in terms of the impact, yes, like every this was a movie in a in a way that's now seems sort of wild for an independent film where even the hit ones are just sort of like you know sort of skirting around the fringes of of popular culture but like this was a movie where everyone had to you had to see it you had to have an opinion about it you wanted to talk about it you wanted to float theories about it you wanted to examine it and you wanted to get on those very primitive early you know chat rooms and message boards and so forth and and hash it out that's one thing that 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 really when I think back about the movie now is I really remember it being like the first movie that people were really talking about on the Internet um, in that sort of early dial up, you know, AOL version of it. And it really felt like an Internet movie for all of the sort of old school influences and aesthetics to it. You know, I write in the book a little bit about how it was, you know, one of the first hyperlink movies that you click from from one story to another out of order, sort of triggered by words and ideas um, in a way that you would web surf um, that 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 was sort of it seemed sort of baked into that same idea. Well, it's funny. There's an early DVD extra for Pulp Fiction where Roger Ebert 
is commenting, I don't know if you've seen this, he's commenting on the Pulp Fiction phenomena online because I think some of the earliest yeah. chat communities were obsessed with all of these, like, what's in the briefcase type questions. Yeah, like the Church of Tarantino site and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, and it's hilarious to watch because he's obviously, he's on this blinking dial-up connection, you know, watching yep. a very nineteen nine, a very mid-1990s style web, web page and sort of marveling over the, the futuristicness of it all, which plays, which is sort of hilarious in retrospect. Um, right. But this sort of brings me in, into the last thing I wanted to touch on, which is the remix aspect of Pulp Fiction, um, which is one of the things that when the internet was responding to the movie, everybody was was commenting on, on its influences. Some people said that it was ripping off certain movies, which in mm -hmm. retrospect doesn't seem true. But I think something that's very distinctive about this movie is that it obviously has unapologetic influences from many, many, many sources, yet it's a very original feeling movie. So yeah. what, how would you characterize the, the remix aspect of this movie and how Tarantino got it right? I mean, I think what's important, the, 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 the historical analogy, again, to make that's key is that this is also a movie that came out in what I consider the golden age of hip hop. You know, this sort of like early 90s period where sampling had really become an art form, where the Beastie Boys had put out, you know, Paul's Boutique and Tribe Called Quest had put out Low in Theory. And these, these, this idea that was not questioned in hip hop of taking tiny little pieces from, uh, you know, sometimes dozens of sources to create a new thing, to create, to use bits and pieces of songs to create a new song. And I think that's something that was just sort of in the air at that moment in the early nineties that Quentin was responding to. And that sort of summarizes his work that he had spent, you know, this, you know, mythologized 10 years or so working at video archives and taking home a, a stack of tapes every night and just mainlining movies of, of all qualities and origins and, and quality. Um, and so when, and, and sort of spitting them out into something that had elements that could be traced back and you can do, you know, the sort of the DNA map of this movie. And I, I, I do in the book, but much like, you know, a, a song from Paul's boutique that has 12 different samples on it. It doesn't really sound like any of those 12 songs anymore by the time they've been mashed together and then synthesized into this singular voice of the artist. And I think that's what's happening in in Tarantino's work in general. I think he's kind of like a DJ um, who knows every record in the crate, knows every bass line, knows every hook, knows every horn line. and But when he puts it together, it's a thing that sounds like him. Um, and I think, unfortunately, that's the element of him that was sort of irreplicable, that all of us who were trying to make our own Pulp Fictions we're just taking a thing and replicating it because we didn't have that vast array of, of influences and of knowledge that sort of that encyclopedic deep knowledge. So we were sort of replicating one thing instead of taking one thing, combining it with 12 others and having a new thing. But that is the thing that he is, that he was able to do from the beginning and always has done well. Well, one of the conversations that came out of hip hop is like, 
the idea of where we're going to enforce originality, you know? Right. Because I think in the early 90s, finally, they, there started being some lawsuits that, that really made mm -hmm. Paul's Boutique a historic album because you just can't do that anymore. Exactly, exactly. Um, but I know that Malcolm Gladwell has talked about basically – we have to enforce plagiarism at the sentence level because at the idea level, plagiarism is, is the central part of creativity, you know, borrowing ideas. Right. Yes. So, so I just wonder, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just two part question, I guess, does anybody not steal? Uh, and two, I'm curious to know, do you think Tarantino read any craft books like Sid Field's screenplay book, or do you think he just instinctively knew this from watching so many movies? Because it feels like people can do a remix movie poorly um, mm -hmm. But if they did it poorly, then they wouldn't have that inherent character doing double duty and those tensions that come up in every single scene of this movie um, where where um, there's different relationships that are connecting and, and different tensions that are that are that are driving certain expository scenes. Um, yeah. So do you think that was instinctive or learned and um, how and why? Why is Tarantino seem unique in this regard? I mean, I think. I think it is a question. I, I, I don't want to blow it because there may be a quote. I feel like there is one, and I'm not going to recall it correctly. But I feel like somewhere he said in an interview or something, he said he read like you know the first couple of chapters of like the famous Sid Field screenwriting book and just like threw it away because he realized that all it was going to teach him was formula. And if you can, and the thing that you have to say about his scripts and this one in particular is that they are not formulaic that you know the screenwriting texts that are out there are basically teaching you how to write a sellable screenplay that's the kind of screenplay people are used to and that's not the kind of movie that he wanted to make um so it's my understanding that he learned how to write a screenplay from like studying movies and then reading screenplays so that you can learn like format and you know layout and all that sort of stuff um but i again i think i think Unless you have lived in a cave, in a hermetically sealed environment for your entire life, and then you come out and pick up a camera and make a movie, it's absolutely impossible not to steal. The, what, what makes the difference between, you know, sort of a hack and a great film artist is the ability, again, to synthesize all of those influences and come out with a voice that's yours, that's your own, that's that sounds like you, which then in turn other people will steal badly or make into part of their unique voice. And it's just this wonderful sort of uh, life cycle of creativity in the form. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Jason Bailey's comprehensive book about Pulp Fiction, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.